take your scriptures, if you will, and open them to Hebrews chapter 10, as we make our way through this wonderful book. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 25. Many years ago, the first cousin of Queen Victoria, his name was Lord Cecil, he became a Christian and went to preach the gospel in Canada. He went to the large cities in the backwoods, among the farmers and lumber camps, he went everywhere. One Sunday morning, he was walking on his way to worship to a local church. He was passing by a farm... And he noticed a man chopping wood. And he recognized him as a man who had given his life to Christ. But had drifted away from the faith. So, Lord Cecil stopped and between strokes, he yelled, The Lord is coming, brother. The Lord is coming. The man stopped, looked up for a moment. And kept chopping wood. Lord Cecil went on his way. Later on that day, he saw the man entering church. What had happened? The Spirit used that simple reminder of the Lord's return to spur that man to action. Have you ever thought about that yourself? The Lord is coming, brother. The Lord is coming, sister. What effect does that doctrine of the Lord's return have on your faith? What does it have, what effect does it have on your day-to-day life? Does it have any effect at all? Well, today in our text, the author reminds his audience that he that are considering leaving the faith not only what Jesus has done in his first coming but also that he's coming back again look with me at verse 19 in chapter 10 God's word says therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Oh, Father God, you know how incapable I am. You know how weak I am. And the words that I will use are weak words, but I ask you, Heavenly Father, to use them. Sculpt them. 
refine them even now so that we may become closer to you and a closer image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in name we pray. Amen. The therefore here, if you haven't studied Hebrews before, the therefore here in chapter 19, in verse 19 rather, is the conclusion of the author's argument for the first 10 chapters. It is, if you will, the, the Romans 8 of Hebrews, that great mountaintop. So what we're going to do is we're going to pull the brakes in a little bit. And we're going to slow down. If you're here for the first time, this doesn't mean anything to you. But for us, we're just going to slow down a little bit. And we're going to look at, over the next four weeks, this section of Scripture. Because it's so critical. Looking at the first, we're going to look at the three imperatives that we read in verses 23, 24, and 25 in the next three weeks. Let us draw near. 23, let us hold fast. 24, let us consider. But today we're going to look at what the author does in the bookends of this section of Scripture. He bookends this with Christ's first coming and his second coming. And so I want us to notice those bookends because he's reminding the, the readers what he has told them over the last ten chapters. And then he tells them and spurs them on in verse 25 by reminding them that, by the way, Christ is coming back. And so let's, let's look at verses 19, 20, and 21 as, they, as he describes Christ's first coming. And he uses three wonderful Old Testament images to describe this. First image we have is the blood. Look at 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Understanding the blood of Jesus is critical to understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Southern Baptist Seminary professor, or rather president, Al Mohler writes this, Some individuals have sought to rid Christianity of its blood language, speaking about Jesus' love instead. The blood of Jesus Christ is integral to Christian theology. And then he concludes and he says, If we lose the language of blood, we lose the gospel. That's pretty significant, don't you think? I have to admit, growing up, I grew up in a Christian home, Growing up, I didn't hear a lot about the blood. I knew about the blood, and every once in a while it would come up, but I had no idea the centrality and the cr- of critical importance it is, the blood of Jesus Christ. Scripturally, blood is the cleansing agent. Blood is the cleansing agent. That's what the author is drawing our attention to back in chapter 9 in verses 18 through 22, when he's describing the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant. If you remember when we were back there, he describes uh, Exodus 24, what went on there where they, they, they slaughtered these animals and they took the blood and, and they spattered it on the tabernacle and they spattered it on the furnishings and they spattered it on the people, cleansing them. And that initial cleansing. If you ask a person today what the smell of cleanliness is, they might say, you know, the soap they're using. 
or their, their favorite shampoo or, or Windex or something. Uh, my personal one is, is chlorine. When I sm- smell chlorine, it is clean. Uh, it's a running joke in our family. When the kids come back from the swimming pool and they smell like chlorine and my wife says, go take a shower, I always go, what's cleaner than chlorine? <laughs> That's the smell of clean for me. If you ask an Old Testament Jew what the smell of clean is, do you know what he would say? The smell of blood. That's what he reminds them of back in chapter 9, verse 22, when he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no cleanliness without it. You have to be washed in the blood. Blood equals spiritual cleansing. And that is what we need, brothers and sisters. We need cleansing. Don't we? A Newsweek cover story years ago focused on the human capacity for evil. It was actually a pretty shocking article. It was written by Sharon Begley. And she writes this, In their search for the nature and roots of evil, scholars from fields as diverse as psychology and sociology and philosophy are reaching a chilling conclusion, she writes. Most people do have the capacity for horrific evil. Quoting psychologist Robert A. Simon, director of psychiatry at Georgetown University, who says, the capacity of evil is a human universal. It's pretty amazing in Newsweek. What they're finally realizing is what Paul wrote the first three chapters of Romans to prove, right? That we are sinful, we are depraved. If you remember the conclusion of that, he writes, no one is righteous. It was even read this morning from the Psalms. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. No one does what is good. Throats, tongues, lips, mouths, he says, all evil. Feet, swift to shed blood. No fear of God. No desire to seek God. That's you and me. That's our heart. Richard Lovelace, professor at Gordon-Conwell years ago, describes our heart of sin this way. Our hearts are an underground network of caves, all interconnected and full of darkness and sin. As light shines in it, it reveals a cave together with passages to ten more. Travel into another cave and we find ten more passages. Tim Keller's mentor, Jack Miller, used to say, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. But then he would say, but you're more loved than you ever dared to hope. And that love is shown in Christ's blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of many. That's what Christ's blood does. It cleanses us. When we see blood, we tend to recoil. We shouldn't. Because it reminds us that we are clean. Because it reminds us of Christ's blood. Because of Christ's blood, we are clean, we are forgiven. We are perfect in God's eyes. But that forgiveness comes at a cost. 
And that's really the second image that the, that the author brings up. Look at verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Some other verses say through his body. The second Old Testament image is the image of the curtain. Forgiveness comes at a cost, at the cost of Christ's own body. Our public reading of Scripture today, we read that when Christ died, the curtain was rent from top to bottom. That curtain was inside the holy place. And inside the holy place, there was a, there was a thick curtain that separated the holy place with the, with the table, with the showbread, and the, and the candelabra, with the lights, and the prayer of incense, from the most holy place, or the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence was. There was this thick curtain separating. And on the cross, when Jesus breathed his last That curtain, that thing that separated sinful man from holy God was ripped into, was rent, was torn, was broken. That's what needed to happen to Jesus' body in order for you, in order for me to have access to God, in order for us to have a relationship with the God of the universe. Something had to die. Something has to die. Blood needs to be shed. Something needs to be ripped apart for us to have access. In the old covenant, it was the animals. In the new, it's Christ's body. Torn in two. Ripped like the curtain to atone for your and my sins. See, the wages of sin, the payment of sin, sin has a cost, and that cost is death. Something has to die for your sin, for my sin, to be paid for. And that was Jesus' body ripped in two. This is what we need reminded of so often. And you know, Jesus and God in his providence gave us something right here so that we could remember that, so that we won't forget that although we have a relationship with God, it is made possible through the body of Jesus Christ, broken for us. That's what he said when he instituted the table, right? On that night before he died, he took the bread and he looked up and he gave thanks and then he ripped it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. This is, this is what sin payment looks like and you'll see it in a mere six hours. When I ever time, that's why I like using a loaf. It's okay if you don't, it's fine but I like using the loaf of bread because every time I rip a piece off and you can kind of hear it, it's reminding me of what Christ went through 
for me. It reminds me of the great cost of my salvation. The last gospel image the author uses is that of great priest. Look with me again at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Great high priest. The author is reminding us of Jesus' role as our mediator. This has been the focus of the argument. If you've been with us throughout our, our time in Hebrews, this has been the focus of the argument for chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, even bleeding into 9. The high priest was the mediator between God and his people. There needed to be a mediator. And he stood between God and his people, representing the people on their behalf. And he made atonement for the people's sins once a year by killing that goat and sprinkling that blood on the mercy seat. He made sacrifices for himself before he even went into the most holy place to appease the wrath of God. What the high priest was doing was basically appeasing the wrath of of God. The high priest was appeasing the wrath of God. Many people are uncomfortable with a God who is angry. Much rather talk about his kindness and compassion and love and grace and mercy. Very often, very very not very often when we are giving that acts prayer and, and when we come to that A, adoration, very rarely do you hear, Lord, I praise you for your anger. We want to talk about the love and the grace and the mercy and kindness. And those are all true of God, but he is also holy and he's also just. And sin kindles his wrath. Make no mistake, the wrath of God will be let loose. It will. It's either going to be let loose on you or on Jesus Christ. Those are the two directions that God's wrath is going to go in. Someone needs to stand before God. And take his wrath. And when you place your trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus comes and stands between you and God. And he takes the wrath of God for your sin. That's what was happening on the cross. When the full weight of sin of the world was placed on Jesus and he cried out, He was standing between. He was taking the full wrath of God. That's his position as high priest. Hebrews 
if you remember, says he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin. How? By sacrificing himself, by standing between you and God. On that day, 2,000 years ago, God took the full wrath of God. He hung where we should have hung. It's a wonderful verse in 2 Corinthians 5 that says, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus was rejected so that we might be accepted. Jesus was hated so that we might be loved. Jesus was cast away so that we might be drawn near. So that we could have a real, actual, living relationship with the God of the universe. Francis Schaeffer wrote, The central message of the biblical Christianity is the possibility of men and women approaching God through the work of Jesus Christ. That's true. That's what Jesus has done for us. And that's really the first bookend that the author wants to bring to light. But there is a second bookend, and that is he's coming back. He's returning. Look at verse 25 with me. Verse 25 says, Encourage one another, and all the more. Why? As you see the day drawing near. Presbyterian pastor Andrew Bonar the hymn writer Horatio's brother, told a story of a man in the Scottish Presbytery Church years ago who traveled one Sunday to Edinburgh to find out if they had sound doctrine in those churches. He went from church to church listening to sermons. When he returned to his village, the people asked him how the Edinburgh preachers were. And this is what he said. They all fly on one wine. They all preach the first coming of Christ, but they don't preach the second. Bonar went on to comment, nothing recovers spiritual fervor and rekindles your passion for Christ and gives a yearning for your sanctification, like the realization of the great fact that he has come and that he will come back again. I think that's why the author of Hebrews ends our text this way. He wants to remind them that Christ came, but he's coming back. We live in that in-between time, that, that age of already accomplished, not yet consummated. Already accomplished, Christ's first coming, not yet fully consummated. That's what happens when he comes back again. Daniel Dunlop of Ligonier Ministries writes, Already but not yet describes the tension between the benefits of redemption already experienced in this life and those benefits which await us at the consummation. Christians enjoy the readiness of the atonement, forgiveness, a clean conscience, a relationship with God, spiritual power to resist sin, However, he writes, there is a sense in which we will not see the realities in totality until the day when he comes again. So they will always remain objects of faith. And that's the key. That's the age we live in. We live in the age of faith. 
Like all who came before us, we must live by faith. We must have the conviction of the things that we do not see yet. Because although we have this reality of this relationship, a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we're still not face to face with him. That's yet to come. Until then, we have to live by faith. I think that's the context of of really the next two chapters of Hebrews, is faith. The author is going to go on and write what happens when one is faithless. If you look at your scripture, you can start reading in verse 26 and see and read one of the most chilling warnings in all of scripture. If you want that, that feeling in your throat, that choking up feeling, read those scriptures. For if we go on sinning deliberately after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Then the author turns and encourages his readers in the next section, verses 32 through 39. He says, but recall the former days. After you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle and suffering. He goes on to say, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. He's encouraging them to be faithful. Don't leave the faith. And then finally, he's going to give a long list of people who did not give up the faith. That's chapter 11. He's going to remind us of people like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and all the rest. He even writes in verse 13 of chapter 11, these all died in the faith, not having received the promise. Isn't that amazing? They were faithful and they didn't, they didn't receive the promise. They didn't see Christ coming. They didn't see him. They just lived by faith looking forward to Christ's first coming. And we live by faith until he comes again. We live by faith and faith brothers and sisters, is not fragile. Faith is powerful. Before the age of portable video games and movies on car trips, we used to play a lot of other games, including word games. One of them was 20 questions. Do you know this one? Where where you come up with a, a scenario, kind of a riddle, and the people have 20 questions that they can ask you to solve that riddle. My favorite one was, a person is drowning in the middle of a lake, you're on the shore, yet you, and you can't swim, yet you save them. How? Gets your mind working. The riddle draws you in, doesn't it? There's power in the unknown. It has been said that life is a riddle, which God wants me to experience but not necessarily solve. Many Christians sometimes rush to put God's truth in little boxes, systematize it, categorize it, organize it. While for others, maturity is defined as what you know, how much you know. But God may be more concerned how you handle what you don't know. Just as a riddle loses its power once it is solved, so does faith 
once you have sight. By keeping us in our riddle, God is helping us learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Sculpt us, move us, challenge us, encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.